Today, you're going to hear from Carter Kaiser. Carter's our preaching intern this summer. He's a student at Lipscomb University, but he also grew up right here at Highland, so he's one of our own, and it is special to hear him declare God's Word to us today. So, he's going to talk to us today about the Exodus. So, let's give him our attention. Well, July 4th is coming up in a few days, which is a day where we remember our freedom. And it got me thinking about the idea of deliverance, because you can't have freedom without deliverance from something, which makes me wonder, have you ever desired deliverance from something? It can be a place, a person, a thing. When I think of personal deliverance, I think of one specific instance from childhood. When I was about five or six, I was over at Tucker Mullinex's house, and we were just having a regular day where we were playing in the yard, and it came to be about mid-afternoon, and my mom pulled up, and she was going to pick me up and take me home for the day. Well, we didn't want the day to end, so what we did was we ran into the house, went upstairs, and then ran into Mr. Derrick's office where we locked the door, and we were like, whew, okay, we're safe. The problem is, is at six years old, we did not know how to unlock a door. So we realized this and we started panicking. Now, don't get me wrong, Mr. Derek's office was really nice, but as a six-year-old, I really could not appreciate the architecture of my jail cell at the moment. So we start panicking and my, my mom and Mr. Derek are on the other side of the door trying to walk us through how to unlock a door. And after about 20, 30 minutes of trial and error, we finally get it and we're saved, okay? And when I look back, I think about how we could not save ourselves and that our help had to come from the outside. And although this isn't a childhood defining moment, I can distinctly remember wanting to leave that room so bad. It felt like that the walls were just closing in and that the ceiling was caving in and that I was just trapped. And while this is kind of a funny example, deliverance is a theme that typically shows up in the more serious places of life. I've been doing a Bible class in the Shelby County Department of Corrections with Hope Works. And on my day where I was meeting the guys for the first time, we were going through and kind of introducing ourselves. There was a group that was touring the compound that walked past and they were talking and they were laughing and they had their drink cups with them. And there was one man to my left who wasn't really engaged in our conversation, but I hear him kind of mutter under his breath with this deep look of longing in his eyes. He sees these people walk past and he just goes, man, I can't wait to get out of here. Regardless of if you've been incarcerated or not, I'm sure all of us can resonate with this feeling of desiring deliverance from our circumstances. I was listening to a song the other day by country music star Chris Jansen, and it went like this. You say you got a broken phone and a broken heart. The boss is on your back and your truck won't start. None of your friends want to listen to Hank. Well, I can't fix that, but I can fix a drink. And as I was listening to this, I seriously thought that these lines captured the human condition perfectly because no matter what, we crave deliverance from something. And our initial instinct is to figure out how we can deliver ourselves from a situation. And so we either try to take control or 
We try to numb the pain to escape, which is not the same thing as deliverance. And sometimes we can take control of these situations, but what are we supposed to do in situations we can't control? We take this question with us into the passage of today. Exodus 14, 13 through 14, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now we have to ask what's going on here and why is Moses giving the Israelites this command? Well, at the end of the book of Genesis, the nation of Israel, which was just a small group of people at that time, had moved into Egypt. And there they lived peacefully and they grew very large in number until one day there was a Pharaoh who came into power and he felt threatened by the size of Israel. And so what he did was he began to enslave all of the Israelites and he would kill all of the firstborn male babies. And so because of this oppression, the Israelites cried out to God for deliverance. And God sent them Moses, who would eventually go and challenge Pharaoh. And he would say the famous lines, let my people go. And each time Moses would go and do this, Pharaoh would always say no. And what would inevitably happen is that Pharaoh would send, or that God would send a plague. Now these plagues were huge displays of God's power. God would send hail and locusts and, and boils on the people's skin. And then ultimately he would kill the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And that was the final plague, the last straw for Pharaoh. And after that happened, Pharaoh let the people go. And so our passage is coming right after Pharaoh has just let the people go from Egypt after this last plague. And the Israelites think that they're finally free. They think that this is gonna be an event-free thing that happens. They're gonna walk out clean. Everything's gonna go fine. But God has other plans. A few verses prior, God says this in Exodus 14 too. Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite of Baal Zephon. So the Israelites do as instructed. They camp by the sea. But when they do, they turn around and they see this Egyptian army that is charging toward them and is beginning to surround them. And so Russ made a graphic to kind of illustrate this. And I think this graphic illustrates this perfectly. So here we have, there we go. Here we have Israel in the center of the image. And above Israel is the Red Sea, which we've labeled as chaos, because in the ancient world, the sea represented chaos. Now we can probably think of personal examples of chaos. Some of us may just call that life, okay? But whenever I think of chaos, I think of the children's book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I'm not sure if you guys have read it, but in this book, it is about the main character and his life where everything goes wrong. When he wakes up, he realizes he has gum in his hair because he fell asleep with gum in his mouth the night before. As he's getting ready for school, he drops his sweater in the sink and what do you know, the faucet's running. When he gets to school, his teacher makes it very clear that she likes his classmates' work a lot better than she likes Alexander's work. 
okay? So that's what chaos looks like for us. But for them, chaos in the sea was everything that was untamed. All the creation stories from other cultures had the gods fighting with the sea or holding back the sea. They believed that sea monsters like the Leviathan lived in the sea. Enemies came from across the sea. And for the nation of Israel specifically, they would have been incredibly anxious to be by the sea because they were not a seafaring people. So everything dangerous was related to the sea. And an interesting note that we find in the book of Revelation is in Revelation 21.1, where John, the author of the book, is describing this, this vision that he gets of what heaven will be like. And he makes a very special note in there that says that heaven will not contain the sea, which means that finally all the chaos in the world will be gone. So they have this overwhelming threat on one side, and then they turn around and they see on the other side this closing in Egyptian army, this symbol of human opposition, which reminds us that opposition most of the time is not a general thing, but it can have a face. When we think of opposition, we can typically think of kids who have bullies at school, you know, the big hulking figures, the give me your lunch money kind of thing. We think of that as opposition. But what's interesting is that over time, bullies start to look different. It can be friend groups changing. And we can find that sometimes our friends can be bullies. It can be bosses and coworkers who you just feel like are out to get you. For the elderly, it can be insurance companies or real estate agents who are just trying to gouge them for as much money as they can get, right? We feel this opposition closing in on us and backing us into a corner. And that's what Israel feels like here. They feel like they're just being closed in by all of these things they can't control. And so naturally, they cry out in Exodus 14, 11 through 12, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. What we see here is that Israel has lost all faith in God because their circumstances seem too overwhelming. But remember how they got here. God heard their cries and sent Moses and the 10 plagues. And what Israel doesn't realize in this moment is that if God has saved them, God will save them. And when we read this, we shake our heads at Israel and we say, how could they let their circumstances overwhelm them? I mean, God just saved them with the 10 plagues, but we do this all the time. And a common time, I think a lot of us have felt this, is in our first breakup. Think about it. Think about how you felt what you said, the things you did, you thought that awful feeling would be here forever, that there was nothing past this, that everything was gonna be terrible and you would never be able to move on, right? Think about what you said. I think I'm gonna die. 
I'm gonna be alone forever. Love is dead and I am dying with it, right? You think that your circumstances determine the rest of your life, but usually something, and typically someone, a friend, shakes us back to reality and says, move on, there's plenty of fish in the sea, they didn't deserve you, you can do so much better, you know, those kind of things. And that's what we see Moses doing in Exodus 14, 13 through 14. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now, usually this passage is read as a comforting word by Moses, kind of him going, there, there, it's all good, you're gonna be okay. But what's interesting is that the Hebrew here actually indicates that this is a harsh rebuke from Moses of the Israelites' lack of faith. Part of the verse is just two Hebrew words, which can be translated as, you be quiet, or quite literally, shut up. Now, let's be clear, these are Moses' words. I'm just repeating them, okay? That's not me, all right? But despite Moses' frustration in all this, he gives him three commands during this time. Stand firm, be still, and watch what God does. And the rest is history. God tells Moses to raise his staff toward the sea, and when he does, this mighty wind rushes through and it splits the sea in half. And of course, we know that it's God holding back the sea. And as this happens, there's a pillar of cloud that comes in between the Egyptian army and the Israelites, and the two never meet. And the Israelites are able to cross through the sea on dry ground and get over safely to the other side of the land. And when the Egyptians try to follow suit, God jams their chariots, breaks down those wheels, and he closes the sea in on the Egyptians. And Israel's saved. This story is important because it's a cornerstone of both the Jewish and Christian faiths. For the Jews, this is the most important story. And for Christians, this is maybe the number two most important story behind the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But it is particularly important for Christians because the story of the Exodus is how we understand our deliverance from sin and death. It captures the human predicament, which is that we can't save ourselves, even though we desire and need deliverance. And here is where the writer of Hebrews draws the comparison between Christ and Moses. Because like Moses, Christ brought his followers from the oppression of sin and death into freedom. And it's for this reason that the writer of Hebrews says this, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, because he has delivered us from a power far greater than Egypt. And while all of this is great news, we still find life to be difficult. And that's because of our present position in history. I have a professor who likes to say, we live in the already, but not yet. And this phrase, blew my mind until I realized that Christians have been saying this for over 2000 years and this was just the first time I had heard of it, okay? But what he means is, is that 
we live in between two amazing acts of God, which makes us just like the Israelites in this story. The Israelites already saw the amazing deliverance of God in the plagues, but had not yet seen him finally deliver them from the Egyptians. And we live in this same tension. We know that Christ has already died and rose for us, but we have yet to see his return and final salvation. But in this, our calling is the exact same. Stand firm, be still, and watch what God does. Because if God has saved us, God will save us. And I do not say this to diminish your current struggles. No, I say this to remind you that your current struggles do not have the final word on your life because that spot is reserved for Jesus Christ. As we close you may be wondering how to apply the Exodus to your life. And I wanna respond with a quote from biblical scholar, Peter Enns, says this. Perhaps we can say that it is not so much that we apply the Exodus to our lives, but that the Exodus is applied to us. The significance of the Exodus for us is not found in what we do with it, but in what God has done for us already. In other words, this story is not a go and do likewise story, but it's a come and see story. As Eric and I were talking about this sermon, he brought up how prevalent the theme of deliverance is in our culture, specifically in movies. And as we were, as we were talking about this, he just started throwing out all these different movies. He was like, saving Private Ryan. They just want to get Private Ryan out of enemy territory. Castaway. Tom Hanks just wants to get off the island. The new Super Mario Bros. movie. The Mario Brothers are trying to save Princess Peach from the evil Bowser, okay? We want deliverance. So it's evident that our culture and our world craves deliverance. But as Christians, we believe that we have already been delivered, whether it's in this life or the next. This, this promise of deliverance is reality for us. But it's not that we just passively live in this reality. There is action that can take place. I was in Israel a couple months ago, and I was taking a class during that time. And so we would have these nighttime speakers who would come and um, they would speak to us about a specific topic. Well, there was one night where there was a pair of men who were best friends. It was this Jewish man and a Christian man. And the whole topic was about how their faiths really played an important role in their friendship. And there was one point where the Jewish man began to speak about his relationship just with other Christians. And he, he said that they typically act nasty towards him because he finds that they, they tell him, you're not saved because of your religion. And he said that when he, when he has these encounters, he always thinks, if you Christians believe you're saved, act like it. And that line really got me thinking, what would living like we're saved look like? I think it's just as Moses commands, standing firm in the face of opposition and trusting that God is who he says he is and will do what he said he will do. Standing firm and trusting God are not passive, they are active. They are what we do 
because of what God has done and will do for us. There's a famous scene in Lord of the Rings where the main characters are about to fight in this battle known as the Battle of Helm's Deep, which takes place in a valley. And before the battle begins, the main characters are inside of a castle and they're completely surrounded by tens of thousands of enemy soldiers. And before the battle, Gandalf told the main characters, look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. So the main characters are standing in this castle and they're anxiously waiting for the fighting to start. And then suddenly, one of the characters points out that light has begun to shine through one of the windows. And Gandalf's voice softly comes to mind for everyone. Look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And suddenly everyone inside of the castle gets this surge of courage. And they go and they mount their horses and they ride out into the sea of thousands of enemies. And sure enough, standing on this ledge, looking over the valley is Gandalf, cloaked in white, sitting on a white horse with this massive army behind him. And he rides down and they go and they take out the enemies from the other side. And this scene in Tolkien's book illustrates our human predicament. We face overwhelming powers every day. But because of the sacrifice of Christ, there is a new path that has been opened up for us within this chaos. And because of that fact, we can stand firm in the face of opposition and say, if God has saved me, God will save me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today, and we thank you for the promise that you have given us, Lord, this promise of deliverance. Lord, we thank you so much that you are faithful to us, um, and we love you so much for that, God. Help us to continue to lean into this promise and remind us of this promise when times get tough, God. We love you, and it's your name that I pray. Amen.